Welcome to Adam's World, where we bring everything and anything that has to do with the Muslim world right to you in this podcast. We talk about the struggles we face collectively and individually, and more importantly, we shine a ray of hope on how things can be better and what the future may promise. Tough times. We're still grappling with COVID-19. The UAE just normalized ties with Israel, and Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo, former CIA director and current Secretary of State, are touring the Middle East trying to see who else is going to fold. It's a house of cards. And dark days, I tell you. It's times like these that we really need to stop and think about how we ended up here, and how the hell are we going to get out? Spoiler alert, this podcast has a happy ending. But let's take it from the top. The Middle East remains the same quagmire of conflict, strife, and discord it was at the beginning of the year, or the beginning of the previous decade, if not worse off. It's been through a lot. Mass displacement of populations, a couple failed Arab Springs, the rise of right-wing populism, a couple wars, a few more civil wars, ISIS and terrorism, economies in the gutter, all made worse by COVID. Don't even get me started on COVID. 2020 has been canceled. Rising Islamophobia, dehumanization, the U.S. seemingly on the verge of what looks like a civil war, Donald Trump gunning for the White House. Again, interesting times is the least of it. But let's back up for a second. I was having coffee with some friends the other day, and as with all gatherings of the engaged, quote, unquote, woke activists, thinkers, just decent human beings, really, it wasn't long before the conversation drifted to its usual haunts. Palestine, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, and so on. Liberally sprinkled with unhealthy doses of helplessness and frustration, in a disturbing side order of nihilistic apathy and indifference as answer to the unanswerable. Well, it wasn't the only answer. Just before concluding, there was, for lack of any other way to explain it, a collective exhalation that took the form of, may Allah have mercy on you, blank, Insert the following, Saddam, Malik Faisal, Hariri, the era of real men, the good old days, the golden ages. The resignation of the entire affair is something others who care perhaps a little too much about the state of the world no doubt recognize. At the time it unsettled me, but over the course of days the same phenomena was repeated multiple times, strangely, and weirdly enough consistently. Well, sure, you had variations on it, but there was one central motif in the catharsis sought by these statements, or what these very vague expressions seem to elicit. It's a curious thing, really. Every instance could be presaged by a moment of silent, pensive reflection on the status quo of the Middle East and how he was doing, or even following a discussion of the same subject, but always in response to one overriding archetype. Inability. Inability to do anything. To which genuine heartfelt efforts at finding solutions to perceived problems had somehow become anchored. Instead of asking what should, could, would work, the question itself has changed. It becomes darker, cynical. Questions are suddenly framed around ability. Devolving into these comments and thoughts, repetitions of the obvious, but without teeth. No meaningful, lasting, constructive engagement with these issues, you see. So why bother? 
My friends and I had, like, so many others graduated beyond the imperative of activism for activism's sake. What we wanted was the reassurance that we were making an actual difference. But eventually, basic human responsibility, your Muslim identity, your compassion, sensitivity, awareness, and more than a few life choices all demand an answer. This is not something you can ignore. It demands engagement. Let me break it down for you. We start out by joining volunteer efforts at mosques or in our Muslim student associations or in our communities. And we genuinely believe we're making a difference. We're contributing towards making the world a better place. Let's say I volunteer at a soup kitchen or by hosting a haraka or a hockey night at my mosque. After some time, you might graduate onto bigger and better things. And when I say bigger and better, I don't mean in terms of the activity, but in terms of impact. Let's say you start reaching out to people in prisons or building leadership capacity among people that are younger than you or teaching them debating or whatever it may be. After a while, you're going to ask yourself, all these efforts, are they actually making a difference in the long run? And that's a serious question, and it shows maturity. Because addressing the symptoms of issues is one way of stamping out fires that affect our communities. But addressing the root causes of them that's a whole different ballgame altogether. That's part politics, part psychology, part laws. It takes power, it takes reach and the change of laws and getting to the heart of the matter, understanding, of course. But what do we have on the flip side? That's my question. There's nothing wrong with this, but it seems to be very commonplace. Holding events for the sake of holding events having that youth talk and lecture and great we knocked that one out of the ballpark good attendance guys 50 people came 100 people this many viewers when are we going to hold the next one do they ask themselves why they're doing it i'm sure they think it's a good thing we should do more of this the community needs it it's bringing people to the mosque it's engaging our youth it's educating people but where does it fit in the bigger picture now, I get that not everybody can deal with these questions on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes you just got to keep your head down and focus on what's in front of you. And a good deed is a good deed, guys. You're doing good by your communities. That's, that's amazing. There's nobody who's going to tell you different. But reflexively, falling to the knee-jerk reaction of let's have something for something's sake, it does not answer the question of meaning and purpose. It doesn't address what we're trying to do out here. It doesn't hit the heart of it. You might as well be a leaf in the wind. And this is why you need frameworks. You need larger strategies or plans of action that pick up every single one of these pieces and directs them towards something. And it is the culmination of these efforts, of these multiple bids, this complex initiative trying to achieve a specific or many objectives that yields results. So, like I said, after working in this field for a while, my friends and I had uh, graduated beyond the imperative for activism for activism's sake. Like I said, we wanted the reassurance that we were making a difference. And um, why is that? Because it was an answer to our identity. Basic human responsibility and humanism, your Muslim identity, your compassion, your sensitivity, your awareness... And a few life choices you've taken along the road. It all demands an answer. It demands engagement. And to not do so 
is a recipe for quick cognitive dissonance and essentially being torn in two, knowing what you have to do and ignoring it all the same. But what is the solution? Whenever we talk, we always circle around, beat around the bush, and come back to this eventually. What's the solution? All right, we've been talking about Palestine for the past half hour. Where do we go from here? And whenever it's posed, you always get the, uh, the predominance of furrowed brows here and there, distant looks, clenched jaws, lassitude, mental exhaustion, spaced out. Essentially, we're without answers. And cue the references to the good old days of peace and prosperity whenever we face challenging times. Have we known any? Hmm? The ones we heard about from our grandfathers and read about in books. We hear it constantly in the wistful tones of elders. It was a simpler time, they say. Neighbors knew each other. The doors were kept open. Here you are, images of golden fields, of burnished wheat waving lazily in the breeze. I'm generally skeptical at oversimplification. I think it's deconstruction done blindly and reductionist at that. But they can't all be in on it together. Dependability of memory aside, leaving aside the objectivity of historians, emotional coloring ignored, it goes a lot deeper than that. The other day I had the honor of meeting someone who spent slightly less than two decades in an Israeli prison for carrying a poster or throwing a rock or some other act of defiance. And um, I was trying to wrap my head around the flowing ideals and the golden positive references being thrown around by this guy. Almost I felt carelessly, as if he had, they had no weight. This was somebody who was tortured in prison. Why are you being so positive and cheerful about it? He was an incredibly resilient man. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I got really uncomfortable. Because every time he mentioned personal discomfort, torture, injustice, brutality, it was immediately counterbalanced within the minute by citations to the good old days by citations to uh, times where people did things right, to references to manhood and, and honor, and using that to explain why he didn't break. I'm sure he did. Everybody does at some point. But it seemed to be reflexive. It seemed to be done as a knee-jerk reaction. He definitely wasn't dealing with the emotional weight of what he had seen or endured when he said these things. If anything, he reinforced how bad things are, and he didn't strike me as inclined to self-pity. If not that, then what use did those statements have? That's the question I'm trying to ask. Are they normative ideals to work towards? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because we say work towards, but when we're talking about the good old days, the golden age, are we working forwards or backwards? I like ideals. Granted, I figured out early on that working towards them is, you know, Mario's never-ending staircase. Um, they should inspire and provide the spirit for actual, pragmatic, practical strategies. Provide us with ethical guidelines and boundaries and reminders of how far, they are reminders, sorry, of how far we'll always fall short in manifesting a dream. But this guy, this prisoner, this ex-prisoner, wasn't that either. Whatever it was, it was used as a reflexive coping mechanism. More than a working assessment of the present versus the past, it didn't inspire, and honestly, it just ended the conversation on a politely, slightly pain note. Feeling the absence left by the lack of an answer, covering inability, helplessness, and the like. It's more difficult than it sounds, keeping track of these instances of hollow fetishization, for lack of a better term in conversation. 
And not for any lack of attention either. There was a persistent feeling every time I picked one out, like I had latched onto a slippery idea that had been hovering at the edge of my vision, never directly in sight, yet always there. I won't personify it with this slinking, sneaky character, but if I had to, that's the only way I would describe it. That the normality of it all, of this form of speech and its specific mannerisms, was because I was in effect a son and product of the same culture to which my friends and colleagues ascribed. I say culture here and not faith because there's a huge difference. At the same time, a unity to both. A culture is just a culture. It's an expression of values and history and traditions. But as a Muslim, culture is always inextricably linked to faith. As an Arab, no less so. In other words, speaking this way was normal to us because the speech patterns we inherited were programmed the same way as everybody else. I accepted each and every time someone mentioned something like this because I had been socialized to nod my head and murmur assent to these sweeping generalities, never bothering to really look into the heart of that particular dilemma. I vividly remember reading Raphael Patai's The Arab Mind, which came up somewhere when I was first introduced to Edward Said's on Orientalism. And uh, he spoke a bit about the role of language in defining the other. Granted, um, he was on this very old list of recommended readings, very unbalanced. It was between Albert Hurani, George Antonius, good reads, but Patai was the example of what not to do when he turned his Orientalist groove up full throttle. He was heavily biased, and this is especially so considering he wrote a complimentary book called The Jewish Mind and at least 12 others on related subjects. Let's not even compare between, uh, let's not even look at the creepy parallel he draws between a faith group and an ethnicity. His book felt like a creepy remix of the Arab mind, by the way, a lot more upbeat, positive, and generous in replacing Arab flaws with um, Jewish grandiosity and noble character. I felt like it was a distant cousin to white supremacist thought. But he nonetheless made some good observations. Um, he mentioned the subconscious rote use of inshallah, which rang a bell, objectivity or not. And let's take a moment here and just reflect. A little pop quiz for you. Do you think the overuse of the phrase inshallah caused some kind of like semantic saturation, slowly eroding its actual meaning to the point that somebody can blow you off for a date or an appointment by saying, inshallah, maybe. Like, that's not what it means, but that's what it's come to. Or do you think that the phrase carries so much religious weight and deep significance that there is no other way than for it to become a coping mechanism in the face of the future? Do you think this is going to happen to us someday? Inshallah. Maybe it's like an optimistic catchword. Key phrase. Maybe it's both. Aside from the inconsistent common religious understandings of fate and predestination, or the cultural accretions, the additions that are added onto religion slowly over the times, Ralph Patai noticed Arab culture's tendency to use fate to justify apathy. And I can assure you, these religious coping mechanisms exist, and there's nothing wrong with them. The question is, what happens when they are misused, abused, and when they keep us from doing what we should.
this might seem ridiculous. But bear in mind that this is the Middle East we're talking about here, and there's a reason the ethnicity itself is tied to the language. Language is a powerful shaper of not only interaction, perception, and action, but culture itself. There's a reason they say that language shapes the way you see the world. Let's uh, give the example of the Inuit in um, the northern reaches of Canada who have, I forget the exact number, but something approximating more than 20 words for the word snow. And they can tell it apart, and to you, you can't. There was also an African tribe that was studied about this, and they had seven words for the uh, color green. It was important to them. And you and I, looking at the same shades of green, would only say green, 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 and they would be able to distinguish them. Words, concepts, if they're not in you, you can't make distinctions between things. This is powerful. Think back to the Greeks who, in their texts, refer to the sea as the wine-dark sea. What color is wine? A purplish, dark purplish? What color is the sea today when you look at it? It's blue. But they didn't have the word for blue. So they just saw it as the nearest thing. What about languages that have 90 words for the degrees of love and separation? What does that say about them? We don't know, but we definitely know there's a difference. So, yeah, there's a reason the Bedouins tried touting Prophet Muhammad as a sorcerer. For a society that wasn't heavy on text as masters of language and people who took pride in poetry of form and verse, language was something alive and something that was felt deeply. The Qur'an was instantly recognizable for what it was, inimitable, a miracle by virtue of the strength of its eloquence. So high was their regard for language that the Arabs disliked writing things down. They felt that to write something down was to kill it that the spidery, deathly strokes of ink on parchment did not do justice to the magnificence of the words themselves. And that is why when they wrote things down on paper, they did it so beautifully. And that is what began the beautiful tradition of Arabic calligraphy and Islamic art. The effective concepts on physical constructs witnessed at its simplest in the manifested concepts of eternity and unity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have a lot of people that have talked about this. Ismail and Louis Farouqi, Rahimahullah, Sayyid Hussein Nasr, and countless others have dedicated their lives to unraveling the cultural depths and bridges between Islamic spirituality, language, and its physical manifestation in our world, in our societies, and in the way we live our lives. The Arabic script itself reflects something of the Arab mind, or at least what it used to be. Times have changed. Vegetative, floral, flowing, graceful, yet sinuously sword-like at the same time. A balance between the struggle of survival and the barren, sun-baked lands, even then characterized by so much war, yet finding poetry in the contrast between sharp and flowing scripts, life and death, courage and cowardice, a solitary oasis in the heart of a desert. Words fanned passions of the heart, moved the soul, began and ended wars, actually. 
They healed or separated friendships. They artistically encapsulated the essence of a moment. But that was then. The Middle East has different concerns now. Grammaticism and poetry aren't exactly in high demand. Ibn Khaldun, the uh, father of modern sociology and ancient sociology, you could say, who wrote the Muqaddimah, put this perfectly. Almost speaking to us from the past, which I guess in a sense he is, when he said that the people of Andalusia had a passion for botany and gardening and all that good stuff, and that would only have been possible once the basic conditions of life and civilization had been fulfilled. I don't bring this up romantically, but critically. Even language and art falls into disrepair and disuse, and it's undeniably a product of our times and the conditions we've endured and continue to endure. Our culture's position on language hasn't changed that much, even if the actual mastery and use of it has degenerated. Respect is still associated with fluid command of rhetoric and logic. Exaggerative figures of speech are still used. Language still functions the same way it used to. A little ragged, but not different. Maybe the verbal narrative tradition of the Bedouins hasn't survived, and maybe we don't have the names of our last 14 grandfathers committed to memory, which no doubt today's genealogists um, hold in high contempt. But in our culture, memory still extends beyond our lifetimes and is very closely tied to identity, something we take for granted. Almost the way religion and culture are fused at the hip, something synonymous, but only occasionally separated. And even then, only in cases of contradiction and friction. Try this as a little experiment. Compare with your friends who don't share your culture and observe the differences. Especially if you have like a North American or European friend. Compare how you two speak about the past relative to the person and to what extent the past plays a role in their present, you'd be surprised. Why is the point of the continuity of memory relevant? If a culture is separated from its heritage, you can actually alter it, directly or indirectly. History is full of examples of this. Um, take by forcing African slaves to study Christian tradition. Western history and separating them from their parents. Their language, history, and self-identity was lost. The same thing I think happened in Canada a while back. They uh, took indigenous Aboriginal Native Americans and they put them in Christian schools, which were rife with abuse. And uh, these kids grew up without, without a touchstone to call their own, without a core, without identity. They'd forgotten their culture. And they weren't accepted in white North American Caucasian circles. They were seen as violent, as instigators of problems. They were a reminder to the woke. They just made them feel ashamed, gave them bad vibes. They were shunned and ostracized. So yeah, at times this was less direct. In history, you read a lot about the uh, beginnings, of the first touches of interaction with tribes. Colonial powers come in, they slowly sell them magic firearms, introduce alcohol and drugs. 
This is followed by the trade of goods in exchange for naively offered natural resources and land. And these material concepts of property and wealth, they appeal to the youth. And the youth trickle away slowly, just leaving the elders. The surrounding borders tighten. And a culture is subsumed, a way of life is destroyed. The French colonization of Algeria is the perfect case of institutionalized cultural subversion. After realizing that religious and cultural transmissions occurred mainly through the traditional madrasas, they were banned outright. Imams were arrested, tortured, executed. New religious schools were formed. The curriculum was tightly controlled. The heads of these new schools were headed by mouthpieces that were sympathetic to or direct beneficiaries of the colonial administration. And it was only through underground preservation of traditional learning by the Muslim Scholars Association, other revivalist thinkers back then like Ibn Badis, that there was a base culture to revert to after 132 years of colonial repression. As a witness to this, Malik bin Nebi, the iconic Algerian philosopher, raised the issue of continuity of cultural memory. He, he talked about this extensively throughout his works. Franz Fanon uh, echoed a similar understanding of the vitality of memory in culture and identity. In The Wretched of the Earth, he writes that colonialism does not stop at the subjugation of natives, but rather, quote, by a kind of perverted logic, it turns to the past of the oppressed people and distorts, disfigures, and destroys it. End quote. And this still happens in the present day, ladies and gentlemen. We call it integration and assimilation and being accepted, but the name changes. The times change. The truth of it really hasn't. In your most average Middle Eastern household, there is undeniably a continuity of cultural memory. It's weathered the merciless marches of the ages, of diaspora, of displacement, of war. And so language, culture, and spirituality come together to create this anchoring focal point that is unique, but not necessarily positive, to our identity. It has its benefits, but it also has a dark side. Arguably, they can say that this is brought about by Islam and spirituality, and not through any special characteristic of Arab culture per se. Islam teaches us the significance of our holy sites, and therefore Al-Aqsa is dear to the heart of any Muslim, that's culture. Equally dear, for instance, is the concept of Ummah. We are all equal under the eyes of God. We are not distinguishable by color. And God ranks us by our faith. And this passes into culture and upbringing. Go to Indonesia, Pakistan, Turkey. And there is an inherent consciousness of our long shared histories together. And it's the same as the local national cultural identity. Slight variations on the role of local histories, as with the subcontinent's cultural memory of the Mughal dynasties, the Turkish with their Ottoman heritage and worldview. The same can be said for the concept of Ummah. So the Middle East exists in a timeless bubble because of this. And this is something that a lot of policymakers tend to ignore 
with your short electoral terms and handoffs occurring just when they begin to comprehend the depth of certain issues. Or on the other hand, you have policymakers that disregard the entire affair because they're not accountable. They're autocrats, they're monarchs, they're dictators who feel this is beyond personal interest. Short-term thinking or the lack of strategic culture in the Middle East is, is way too great a subject to develop just in passing. But we know that the Balfour Declaration occurred more than 100 years ago. This is something that comes up in conversations about Palestine quite regularly. Um, we know it's been that long. But when you actually think about how long it's been, you're surprised. Nearly a century. But for the Palestinian refugee, it might have occurred yesterday or the day before. In their cultural consciousness, the massacres at Shanin and Sabra and Shatina happened hours ago. Granted, few were actually witness to it, but culture nonetheless transfers and preserves the significance of it. A father instructing his son, a mother reminiscing to her daughter, a grandfather telling tales to grandchildren. I personally recall, with horrifying clarity, the night the U.S. bombed Baghdad. I was repulsed even as a child watching the casual Fox News roundtable set up where they discussed the kind of missiles, the Tomahawk missiles they were firing with this smoothness and detachment, this, this uh, clinical tone that my mind just couldn't register. And back then, as if in a bad dream, I recall thinking, has Baghdad not had enough? I was thinking of Genghis Khan and the Mongol hordes hundreds upon hundreds of years before. Shock and awe would be renamed. Hearts and minds. Different names, same results. Over a million dead. Courtesy of precision munitions. ISIS came along. We've seen uh, brutality, the likes of which our world has not seen for centuries. Resurface now. And the trauma of those painful days was not limited to me, but shared by many others across the Middle East, regardless of where they were, multiple times. Regardless of what they were doing, or who they were, or where they're from, the shock of hundreds of millions does not dissipate, it doesn't evaporate. It turns into lore, it passes into tradition and culture, it becomes infamous, and it shapes the way we feel about ourselves and our role in the world takes wings in coffee shops, it's immortalized in poems and literature, songs and debates. Our elders argue about it tiredly over cups of tea, and we the young sit wide-eyed, playing in adulthood. We see it in the faint tears carried by our mother's eyes. Even as children, not fully understanding the silence and the hushed whispers around the house make us tiptoe quietly, intuitively aware that something is terribly, terribly wrong. The elders compare to their past, the conviction is only reinforced. You grow a little, you read a little, you feel it a little more. The cycle repeats itself, because it's not a single cultural trauma I speak of here, but many. We lose count.
even unintentionally, it seems, the continuity of memory, by virtue of language itself, allows for the transmission of emotion, and has done so to the present day. Imagine with me, let's say there's some kind of emotional baggage that can be transferred with all of its coping mechanisms, group dynamics, perceptions, personality, and identity. And this is somehow transported through the ages, through the generations, and into you today, shaping how you see the world and how you deal with it and how you react to it. But what are some examples of that? The priority of the interests of the collective versus those of the individual, as found in our culture. The secondary effects of emphasis on obedience, all stemming directly from religious law and instruction, ensuring that tradition passed down by family structures and social superstructures are entrenched and protected, providing culture with a highly resilient and sustainable method of replication. So it seems our culture, with its deep grip over our lives and, and methods of communication and interaction with others and even the world, is here to stay. But what do we do when aspects of it have devolved or simply fallen into disrepair? Let's leave aside the long debates that have already condemned the Western conformist reactionary approach to amending culture in a Western image. Let's take into consideration as well the uh, very legitimate concern that we're still being colonized culturally, even until the present day, and our identity is something unique, not something to be co-opted by what's available in media, controlled by a larger hegemony. And uh, let's leave aside the alarms of danger at existing cultural encroachments that come from Western hegemony and globalization that are simply incompatible with Islamic value systems. Sort of like the uh, most recent Netflix special that came on, where the uh, bunch of little underage girls who are dancing and horribly over-sexualize them and uh, try to pass it off as normal. And that's, that's how morals and values are degraded over time. Um, you have enough of those shows and, uh, I'm sorry, but hypersexualizing young children becomes a thing of norm if you choose to accept it. So what do we do? What do we keep? What do we cut out? You can't be pragmatic all the time and just cut out what you don't like. It's not about efficiency or making a uh, making machines out of people, making a an efficient society as the Germans tried to do uh, pre World War II. Look at how that turned out. Or even if you look at the Spartans and the culture they chose to build, whether they chose to build it or they inherited it because of the stresses of their environment, um, is up for debate. But we can't do that. So. What's our, what's our benchmark here? What's our yardstick? Now, it might interest you to know that there are quite a few reformers and scholars that have spoken about this, about uh, separating between culture and religion. And one of the most prominent, for me anyway, is the Azhari Imam Muhammad al-Azari, uh, and a long chain of other reformers and revivalist thinkers who called for a reappraisal of culture in light of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But I think a balance between both approaches will need to be made and carried out at a point in the Middle East future. Inevitably, it's going to happen sooner or later. But for the moment, the pressing concerns of the present make themselves felt. We have to address the fetish constructs of culture 
and thought that seemed to have taken root in our language and through that implicated our inherent ability to contend with the challenges that form the Middle East status quo. This very serious process of grappling with serious social issues by means of decentering and externalizing the problem only negates the empowered active engagement in the first place. And it subverts what was originally an Islamic culture of sustainability with this marvelous ability to sustain itself and replicate. Instead, we have pseudo-Islamic culture that does more harm than good and still replicates and gets passed on. Specifically, I'm talking about the hijacking of religious coping mechanisms and cultural ambiguity towards things like predestination and fate, which actually make us more apathetic. Even more specifically, I'm talking about the cultural pattern found in our normal interactions that somehow transfers cognitive dissonance, uncertainty, helplessness, and frustration, projecting it on this non-existent other. Basically, decentralizing responsibility, but also ripping out the imperative of action and responsibility from ourselves. I refer to this viral cultural replication of a deepening bystander effect, where the afflicted, having just transferred frustration to this fetish, this golden age, and inshallah misused the latest Zionist or 9-11 conspiracy theory, and in the process, affirm their inability to engage with the cause of their frustration or pain, and then ultimately go on to convince themselves that someone else will fix this problem. Now, I'm not saying this is their fault. I'm not pointing fingers at here. I think a lot of us don't know any better. I think a lot of us have good hearts and we want to make a difference and we want to see a better world. But for one reason or the other, we've become used to inaction. And we can break this down, right? If you're from the Middle East, you're not used to your actions and your voice having making a difference, essentially. On the grassroots, perhaps, charity helping out. But in terms of changing society, building your nation, no. The Middle East is ruled by autocrats that are supported by essentially democratic countries with interests in the region. And historically, in the face of such autocrats, in the face of disaster, we were told that uh, better times will come. We were taught to look to the good ages and the good times. It wasn't always bad, we were told. And uh, our moments will come. But you as a citizen, as part of this very weird social contract, are expected to work hard and uh, keep your head down, essentially. Don't look at the chair. Don't think about it. Don't even come near it. You can organize civil society. You can volunteer at that NGO. You can work at the soup kitchen. But don't talk to us about democratic reforms or development or public health somebody else's responsibility. And at the most basic level, make change in your heart or just say inshallah. If you can't make change with your hand, that is because it's beyond your control. But the thing is, the capacity for making change is something that is acquired over time. You don't just find it in your hand and wake up and it's there. It's something that you actually have to aspire as a pre- aspire to, sorry, as a precondition to making a difference. And once you take a step back and you actually consider all the things that we take for granted as things that are unsolvable, things that are beyond 
our generation. It's going to take too long to work on. This is the work of generations. This requires more resources than we can ever have. You really start to ask yourself, what else have we taken for granted? Let's make a list here. Sectarian conflict. That's here to stay. Can anybody envision that going away anytime soon? No. But does that mean we should accept it? I don't think so. What about gender inequity, racism, Islamophobia, extremism, to name a few? It also goes without saying that social media contributes to this. Everybody seems to have become a voyeur to somebody else's life, an onlooker, where um, a valid substitute for actual engagement is tapping or clicking to show approval or support or sympathy or disapproval. One click for all. And granted, Facebook did bring out the new uh, mood clicks, mood likes. You can heart somebody, you can show ha-ha face or a sad face. But even then, we're just doing Facebook's job at codifying their posts, right? So there you have it. My new, personally unfavorite pastime is to scroll through comments or listen to conversations and debates on controversial subjects, observing. You know the ones I'm talking about? The posts that attract those intense, polarized debates, verbal gymnastics, a lot of imputing of the other's honor, unsavory references, usual posturing, clashes, affirmations of self-worth, intellectual pats on the back that come to bear when humans get together in an online zoo to generally dispense their likes, opinions, and unique approval or lack thereof. These cultural viruses, as I've now taken to fondly calling them, are familiar friends I nod to in recognition now. They tip their hats to me in return, and it's a little bit flippant, I admit, but it fits the context. It's a nice tag especially given its ability to hijack otherwise healthy cultures, subvert rationality, and create these epidemics of cultural malpractice, unresolved cognitive dissonance in the Middle East. Case in point, FGM, female genital mutilation. That's been going on for a while. It's not an Islamic practice, definitely a cultural one. Nobody's thought we should reconcile this and just say like, hey guys, this isn't part of faith. You have efforts. Uh, the Muslim Scholars Association a couple of years out came out and made a fatwa and said this is like clearly not part of Islam. But yet it persists. It carries on into generations. And if you've had it done to you, the odds are very high that you may feel inclined to carry on the practice because somebody at some point decided this was a good idea. Reminds me of the whole dialogue where a kid asks his mom, uh, hey mom, why do you cut the head off a fish and its tail too? Why do you cut the fish into a square? Mom's like, I have no idea. She says, your grandmother taught me how to do this. So the kid goes to the grandmother and asks her and the grandmother says, uh, oh, I had a square pen and that was the only way to make it fit. But yet it persistently passed into cultural memory and practice. After a while, you begin to recognize certain groupings of these cultural fetishes. Um, and I can't help but compare them to these fetishes that shamans used to give to ancient tribesmen. Let's just back up for a sec. When I say a fetish, I'm not using it conventionally, I'm using it psychologically. A fetish is a construct that we pin specific feelings on or we use to alleviate specific feelings. Um, it's either projecting or defense or it's it's a construct it's an icon that has psychological significance to you it's a fixture 
on the wall, if you will. But back to the uh, ancient tribesmen and the shamans that wear these fetishes. So back then they would say like, hey, wear this necklace of shriveled ears and crow feet charms and you'll feel no fear. Does that ring a bell? It seems like a striking parallel to me. Or even today in present day African tribes, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the specific name of the tribe, but the, ah, yes, the Igbo hunter masks that are still used today that stretch back to Mesolithic prehistoric times that allow for disassociation and casual disinhibition. When the wearer wears them, he feels empowered and ready to hunt, not held accountable, basically, uh, to crime and action, or in our cultural cases, to make peace with an action or self-perceived inability. So there you have it. You got the deceased line of fetish supports consisting of Saddam, Malik Faisal, Boumediene, Hariri, and the others. The golden ages of these specific individuals who will never be reborn and there is nobody like them. And that's pretty much it. You have the usual collection of inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has willed it, such is fate, and we must make peace with it. Alas, it isn't written. It's not maktub. God has willed and he does what he wills and so forth. All very true, but not things to stop you from acting on what you need to act. But that's the context in which they're used. The issue here isn't creed or faith, but the misappropriation of faith in a context that is unsuitable to it. And here's a prime example that a lot of people complain about. A young girl meets somebody who wants to marry her or ask for her hand, and she's told that, uh, not that he's unsuitable perhaps, or maybe she's, she's told uh, up front we refuse. Girl gets really sad, or a guy for that matter. And then afterwards they say, maybe there's good in it. Probably true. La'allahu khair, as they say in Arabic. Um, this is, these are matters of nasib, they're told. It's a matter of your, your allotment in life. It's faded. It's destined. Also true. But uh, I'm pretty sure when those phrases were originally devised or originally said or coded, it wasn't for somebody to uh, give up on something or to not take action. And in this case, we're using them as crutches and band-aids. Muslims should be aware of the dominion Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has over us in predestination, but should go forward and live life trusting in divine benevolence, seeking his guidance, compassion, and acceptance. Tie your camels, right? Believe in faith, but tie your camel so it doesn't wander off. Inaction or absolving the dissonance we feel by passing on this responsibility for action to fate is basically <laughs> similar to the person who decides to take no responsibility ever and instead just chooses to drink lemonade and read comics for the rest of his life, stating grandly, this is fate. But how do you inoculate against this uh, sort of thinking? I personally think that it's this ambiguity around fate. Fate is not understood. That makes somebody vulnerable to this sort of abuse. And I'm talking about the dreaded cultural virus. And I don't just mean it in the transference of dissonance to this fetish kind of sense. The golden age, the good old days, the, the crutch, the psychological crutch. But I mean that it actually serves as a weak point for introduction of harmful practices and actions. Justified through fate. Or even going deeper into terms of like religious duty. Daesh, for instance, ISIS. 
and every other terrorist organization that has come along has hijacked the religious cultural narrative and the responsibilities that come with it. And they've gone pretty much unopposed. Not in terms of generating a counter-narrative, but rather in reclaiming the original narrative that was appropriated by extremists to begin with. And we mention again the young man or woman who was advised by some social structure or entity to not take a specific action. Yeah, just go to med school. Reinforcing the point after the fact with this glittering generality along the soothing lines of give it a shot, this might be your fate. If it's fated, it's meant to be. Allah is willed to make peace with it, etc. And like I said, in the same vein, you find justifications that use the same cultural pathway to legitimize child marriage and reinforce gender inequity. So we have a problem, but where does that leave us? Granted, while it's critical and can be remedied with conscious effort, we have to recognize that the culture and sentiments behind it are well-intentioned and largely born out of a lack of channels, mediums, and engagements for bringing about meaningful change. Hashtags and social media activism can only go so far. I mean, they draw attention when they go viral and the media may pick it up, but how many hashtags do you recall from a year ago or two? It's temporary transference at best. Venting, so to speak. Though ideal for raising awareness and giving the impression of solidarity, does it actually do much? And the Middle East does in truth suffer from an underdeveloped civil society. Student bodies are politicized, on the one hand entirely apolitical and written off, and to be fair, there is a gap between governance and individual civil engagement. Governments and authorities dictate to the masses, they spoon-feed them policy as they see fit, which isn't necessarily attached to the non-democratic nature of most Middle Eastern societies. Or even the top-down concentration of power, or even the primary priority of survival and substance before uh, civil engagement. It makes sense. But all this stems from over-centralized, authoritative insecurity, especially in light of the Arab Spring uprisings. And the attitude, if it's meant to protect from dissatisfaction and disillusionment, is very counterproductive because it's short-sighted. A young man or woman with no channel to make change, affect change, falls back on cultural patterns of fatalism, this fetish transference we talked about, the hunter masks, or violence, crime, drugs, and media apparatus, state-owned or otherwise, often fails in covering constructive, moderate messages and letting them focus. Instead, they opt for the quick hit, sensationalist, attention-seeking editorial policies that will maximize their viewership and get the most likes and engagement, as opposed to creating genuine, constructive social engagement. But that's just the media business now, isn't it? It's not about making change. It's about appealing to audiences and covering the news, getting the word out there. Newer generations are beginning to transcend the older concepts of ideology and group movement loyalty, the effects of which are still found in present-day sectarianism and intolerance. But the culture nonetheless lingers, causing ideas to be judged not on their merits, at least consciously, but subconsciously, with this accompanying baggage that contains the speaker's ideology, associations, and membership. What we really need is a shift in our personal culture, and it's a shift that's easily justified. After confronting centuries-old mental and emotional crutches, you have to turn a critical, analytical eye to conspiracy first and foremost, 
declaring and educating all in the loudest, boldest terms that conspiracy thought is by its nature pathological. And it takes away energy from very real issues and challenges societies face today by externalizing problems onto this mysterious shadowy other, Illuminati, Freemasons, the Protocols of Zion, none of which actually exist. It just makes the problems bigger. Conspiracies are something else. You know, through cultural integration and the way they manifest themselves, they actually become constructs to which we ascribe blame. The great Western conspiracy to undermine the Middle East. Nah, man, they're just pursuing their self-interest. It's just power politics. Who's stronger? And who left themselves open to colonization? There's deep history behind that. Maybe we'll cover it in a future episode. Externalizing our problems through any of the things we talked about prevents us as societies, as nations, from coming to terms with the institutional realities of our world, our failings, the challenges we face, and asking the real and hard questions. Our obsession with mythic saviors really has to come to an end. Historical figures, Salah al-Din, learn from the guy. Study his history, his life, what he did. But don't put him on a pedestal. Individuals as a focus for change presents a problem in and of itself. Without the personality, the movement usually falls apart, and we've seen this. We've seen this in the Muslim Brotherhood, after Hassan al-Banna, rahimahullah, was assassinated. And countless other political movements. You take out the head, there is no structure, there's no organization. I mean, sure, the next guy in the chain of command goes up, but that's it, the movement is lost. It's lost its original vision. And as a result, you have somebody trying to uh, give life to what has essentially become an anachronism or practice, something that's uh, outdated already. And this reflects a lot of civil and political organizations in the Middle East today. Take it from me. But rather, we need to emphasize engaging and networking, synthesizing solutions, combining approaches, instead of taking this black and white, with me or against me, binary stand. Changes now with every moment and every action, even if the conditions are less than ideal. The danger in coping with the fallout from our genuine care and passion for social problems through wishful thinking about golden age historical personalities is that we're in turn prevented from effectively integrating lessons which their experiences and times actually provide. Instead, we're left with crippling self-doubt, um, imposter syndrome probably, and a focus on the past instead of the future that generally doesn't lend itself well to social development and strategic planning. As a generation, we must adopt critical yet respectful toolkits of engagement and apply them to authority. Objectivity is not a challenge to authority and tradition, but an aid to help realize the societies and civilizations that we desire in the best possible form. And critically enough, when we use it in line with the Islamic heritage we possess, inclusive of manners of speech, humility, respect, it provides us with a means of ongoing empowerment and crazy our organic reform. In this respect, society is just a reflection of the culture we practice, stemming from a beautiful worldview and the best of ideals. And by engaging directly with, rather than decentralizing the problems that affect us onto this shadowy, ambiguous other, and by virtue of our generation's consciousness of what needs to be done and its unique, compassionate, humanistic worldview, it's my opinion that we can make from the Middle East and the Muslim world something new, something beautiful, something Salah Hadin himself 
without difficulty imagining.